Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There is a big question, and it has been underpinning a lot of the market activity over the past few weeks, and that is the Treasury market, this massive funding market, and frankly, offering benchmark rates for around the world, and it has been beset by incredible dysfunction. Ira Jersey has been covering it all. He's been covering it all for decades uh, back at Credit Suisse and beyond. Now he is our head of U.S. interest rate strategy at Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, is the dysfunction over? And I think that this is sort of the key question as people look at the lack of liquidity in this key market as being unprecedented and highly disruptive, regardless of what we see out of Washington, D.C. Well, it's been better the last, uh, the last 24 hours, for sure. Um, but it's still, it's still very spotty. It's not what it used to be. And, and I think a big part of that is not necessarily because the Fed is buying a lot of bonds. In fact, I think that at some level, that's helping at least a little bit. Um, but I think it's just this lack of risk appetite. And, and like you mentioned, Lisa, you know, there's going to be a lot more bonds to come. I mean, if, if um, you know, even, even if there's a smaller fiscal stimulus plan, like closer to a trillion than to two trillion, you're still going to have a massive um, uh, lack of tax receipts, for example, is going to be a big thing that you're going to see over the next couple of months, at least. So there's going to be a lot more supply of treasuries over the next year, uh, regardless of, of exactly how big the, um, the fiscal stimulus plan ultimately becomes. Well, Ira, so, that's actually where I wanted to go. Okay, so we have some stability, still pockets of, of great illiquidity. But now the qu question shifts to financing this massive stimulus bill that we're expecting, especially without those tax receipts that you were talking about with, with the deadline pushed back to July. How is the government going to do this? We've heard something about a 20-year bond, about a 50-year bond. But ultimately, doesn't it come back to T-bill issuance in the short run just to stave off the cash deficit? Yeah, that, that's 100% right. In fact, we put out a piece just, uh, just this morning about that very, uh, that very thing, where um, basically T-bill issuance is probably going to go up. But I'm going to use this letter. Remember, it's trillion, probably go up over $1 trillion over the next six months or so. And one of the reasons for that is, is 
twofold. One is it'll take a little bit of time for the Treasury Department to ramp up uh, the amount of coupon issuance. So that's the amount of longer-term debt that they're going to issue. So they will be issuing a 20-year. They said that they said that it's going to debut in in May and kind of just in time for a lot of this fiscal stimulus to to be funded. Um, I think that there's a chance that they might do a longer-term, the uh, 50-year ultra bond, but I. Th- Still think it's it, there's a, a question about how much demand they'll have for that. So there's a 50-50 shot. But yes, there's likely to be maybe up to three and a half trillion dollars of T-bills outstanding. Now, what's interesting is even at those massive levels, that's about the same percentage of the Treasury market um, that the uh, that that there was back before 2007 when the Treasury Department uh, reduced the amount of T-bills that it issued. So, um, so so basically, you're going back to historical norms in terms of how much T-bills might be the size of the market. And I think that that's going to be something you're going to see. So, so anyone who really wants super safe assets can get them. What's, what's neat about that now that the Treasury Department will like is T-bills right now in the short, short end, so one-month and three-month T-bills, are trading at zero. So they, they don't yield anything. So, you know, if, if there was a time to issue, you know, short-term debt, it's now when you can basically fund it for free. Ira, so in the Treasury market, the market participants say, hey, the Fed has done pretty much everything it can do, it needs to do, it should do. Now it's really up to Congress and the administration to really push on the pedal of fiscal stimulus. Yeah, so so the so fiscal stimulus is needed for two reasons. I mean, one is because uh, you know the Federal Reserve is designed to kind of help market function and allow uh, the financial institutions to be able to lend to other institutions, right? So so that's the job of the Fed by going in and doing some of the facilities like they are doing, like buying corporate credit, for example. It's not completely unprecedented, but it's pretty close, and and that has to be uh, backstopped by the by the federal government because the Federal Reserve doesn't like to take credit risk. They they basically make loans with uh, big haircuts because they don't want to take credit losses. So fiscal stimulus needs to uh, come to help like small and medium sized businesses where it's difficult for the Fed to go directly to those businesses and help. So um, you know the the fact that they've announced that they want to do a facility through the SBA through the Small Business Administration to help those uh, those types of businesses, which the Federal Reserve can help fund. But ultimately, it's a governmental organization that needs to really uh, focus on that. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at um, this fiscal stimulus plan to maybe even add more ammunition to what the Fed's been doing um, and, uh, and and provide them more equity capital so they can even help uh, help more. Uh, just real quickly here, Ira, I'm looking right now at the Fed's balance sheet, which surged on March 18th last week uh, to $4.67 trillion. How big is it going to get by the end of all of this? So I'm actually looking at the spreadsheet right now that I've been working on. So I, I can't tell you the exact number, but I can say much, much larger. Um, like double? You know, I, uh, uh, at least, yeah. At least double. So in other words, you're expecting at least a $9 trillion Federal Reserve balance sheet by, say, this time next year? Uh, that would not surprise me. Yeah, that, that's kind of in line with what we're talking about. I think a big part of that is how, how, what is the take-up of some of these new facilities? So even if the Federal Reserve you know, kind of slows down its purchases of, of mortgages and treasuries, which I think eventually it will do, is the SBA facility, for example, which is really where the pain point is in this whole uh, in this whole mess with the right. social distancing, um, is, uh, is that going to get to a trillion dollars or not? And that's going to be a big question. 
Ira Jersey, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your commentary here and what has been a very busy period in the U.S. Treasury markets. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. Lisa, yeah, that was a, a number out of me, uh, more than doubling uh, you know, in terms of the balance sheet. Wow. That means more than $9 trillion. That will be the, its balance sheet. And I believe that that will be a hot potato political issue for a lot of people, and yet viewed as crucial in stabilizing the market right now. Yeah, absolutely. And the market, uh, a much stronger day today, uh, Lisa, as we've been saying, uh, the Dow up 7.8%. That's 1,400 points on uh, the Dow. So again, a risk on day today as the market tries to price in where this is all going. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's talk to a professional about what to do with these markets. Matt Maley, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tabeck, joins us here. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Wow. Okay, so we've got the green on the screen today, but just help us put into perspective what we're seeing in the markets really over the last couple of weeks, but certainly over the last several days. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because uh, back in when the thing first hit, uh, uh, we were saying that uh, people should raise some. You know, the market was priced for perfection, and people should raise some cash uh, uh, because if we did get a severe da- a downturn, you'd be able to, you know, uh, be able to put that cash to work. And now we're kind of seeing the the the, the opposite situation. We're we're going to be a little bit more comfortable. Uh, not saying that the, the bottom is going to is in, and today's market's doing better. But you can't you can't I think it's impossible to grab the uh, uh, the exact bit. Pick the exact bottom. So if you're dipping your toe back in here, and usual, uh, and buying more on a very gradual scale-down basis, uh, you know, a year now, or a year from now, or two years from now, you're going to look quite good because uh, once it does bounce, it's going to be impossible to chase it. So you do have to take advantage of it when it's down. Matt, I want to follow up on that. The concept of once it bounces, you won't be able to chase it. That sort of implies that we are going to see some massive recovery, and that doesn't seem to be the consensus right now among at least economists who I speak to. Can you talk about the market recovery and how it might look versus some of the economic estimates that we're hearing that are not so optimistic? Well, we've always got to understand that the, the, that the stock market moves, uh, especially on the way back up. So in this case, the, the, it was only it was a very mild delay. Usually, there's a big uh, we get you know, the, the stock market rolls over you know six months in front of the uh, the economy. Now, you know, because of this kind of a you know black swan event, uh, it, it only happened uh, shortly after uh, it became uh, evident that it was uh, going to rear its ugly head. And but the thing is, when the when the market uh, tends to, it, it bounces a, a lot earlier. I mean, in, in and the simple reason is is that it it sells off very much more quickly than the, the economy slows down. So it prices in some of the worst case scenarios much more quickly. Now again, that's not to say that this market can't go down further. Uh, uh, but the, the the important thing is for investors to do is, is to uh, separate what's going on in the stock market to what's going on in in the uh, economy because there's always that lag. And one of the key reasons why people, I mean, people, geez, I don't really want to have a lot of confidence to buy any stocks until things feel better. But you know something? History shows us that when things really feel better, the market's already seen a, a big bounce and a big move up. So to gradually buy stocks uh, in a, on, uh, over the next few months, and I'm not just saying to the next week or two, over the next few months is going to be a good way to take advantage of this severe downturn. So Matt, as you think about it, you know the volatility that we've seen in the market, we continue to see in the market some um, you know, sectors really at historically low valuations. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, some of the cruise lines and some of the leisure lines that got hit the most and earliest. How would you suggest people do get back into the market to the extent they want to kind of dip their toes or dollar cost average or however you want to swing it? 
Right. I mean, one of the things, of course, we, we, we know that uh, these cruise lines or the, the, the airlines, et cetera, you know, when they turn around, boy, you're, it's going to be a grand slam home run, whoever can uh, pick that bottom. But like I said, it's almost impossible to do that. The thing is, with so many high quality names uh, and, you know, companies with uh, great balance sheets, great managements uh, and things like that, you're still going to be able to hit a two run homer. So why, you know, why go for the grand slam when you can hit a two run homer? Usually you only get an opportunity where, gee, I, I can get a beaten down stock or a beaten down group because it's separate from what's going on in the rest of the world. Therefore, the best I can do in the really quality names is a single. But boy, I can hit a grand slam with this other one. Now, if you can hit a home run or a two run double, why not go with the high quality names? And that's why you know uh, it, there's much less risk, but still a lot of reward in those uh, uh, those high quality names. We're speaking with Matt Maley, uh, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tabak. And Matt, you know, your argument sounds compelling. It makes sense based on the buy the dip kind of mentality that we've seen over the past decade. There is a question, though, that the disruption here is fundamentally changing the economic outlook and fundamentally changing the balance sheets of a lot of companies. And it doesn't seem like all of them will be rescued. How do you sort of get confidence that this time will be like the others and that buy the dip will work at a time of such incredible uncertainty just about, you know, how quickly this will recover, whether we might be heading into a depression? Well, I think one of the things that's going to be, you know, first of all, you know, again, I just want to admit to say that I, I, you know, when when the market started heading down, I was saying, you know, sell sell the sell the bounces. So, uh, you know, I was early uh, calling to, for, for uh, investors to be careful, raise some cash, and, and really, when the market was still down twenty or twenty five percent, I was saying the same thing: raise cash on bounces. However, the thing is, and you're absolutely right, Lisa. The, the, the one of the things that we, people are saying is, geez, I can go back in, and it's much more than a dip this time. It's a big, it's a crash basically. But what do I do? Do I just buy the stock market and, and buy everything like I've, I've done? In, I did in 2018. I did in 2016. That works like a charm. Now you have to be much, much more careful. Uh, it's now becoming a stock picker's market. People have been saying that was going to happen for a while. It's happening now. Uh, you know, I believe that the, to a certain degree that uh, passive investing is, gonna be, is dying. Uh, and, and so therefore, investors need to be uh, thinking about specific companies, uh, not just specific industries, but specific Specific countries within the best industries, and you know, you talk to your uh, investment advisor. Uh, use the mutual funds uh, that that have a tradition of uh, of having really good stock pickers. There's not that there's not a huge amount of those, but there are several that are very very good, and that's why I think people can can dip their toes back in and cost a uh, uh, dollar cost average down rather than jump back in and say, "Geez, I'm just going to buy the S and P or, or some sort of ETF uh, with my eyes with my eyes closed." So Matt, what are you looking at right now? What are the names today that you're looking at or the sectors today that you're looking at? Well, one of the things, it, it, it's funny, is, is this whole, whole technology thing. And, I, and I've been a little surprised by this, it, it, but I shouldn't have been. It, now that this I've whole been technology thinking about thing? This, this whole <laughs> yeah, iPhone, I mean, this whole yeah. smartphone whole thing. Internet. It's just amazing. Well, I mean... The, the funny, funny but in years, Pabby, when I, you know, in the in the 1980s, 1990s, even into the, especially after the tech bubble, uh, in, in the in the in the next decade, in 2000s, or the aughts, I guess as they call them, uh, the people would say, oh, geez, you know, when you go back in, you don't want to go right back into the tech area because that's the more more risky, yeah, more more reward, but it's a very very risky area. Uh, this time, and and therefore they tend to do better on the on the way up, and then they get clobbered on the way down. But now technology has become 
become so such a backbone of our economy. It's not the risky part of it. Uh, you know, there's certainly parts of, uh, of, of technology that are uh, more risky than others. But you've got some great companies out there that are, that are the backbone of the, the U.S. industry. It's not General Motors uh, anymore. <laughs> it's not General Electric anymore. It's the Apples and the Microsofts of the world uh, that are the backbone of, of our uh, – and, and we've seen that in the, in the way this, the market has gone down. Instead of underperforming, it, it, the, the, the NASDAQ, which is obviously heavily uh, weighted in, in technology series, has gone down the same amount as the S&P. It didn't underperform uh, on the way down, even though it did outperform nicely on the way up. And that's encouraging to me that the, the, some of the names you'd wanted to avoid, it, avoid in past sell-offs, uh, at least early on, uh, these technology names, uh, especially the high-quality ones, are the ones you do want to be buying. And they have outperformed right. over the last six trading days. And so uh, I think that tells you something right there. Matt Maley, thank you so much for taking the time. Matt Maley, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tabak and Company, joining us on the phone and uh, those iPhones. I think that I think <laughs> that the smartphone industry is onto something, Paul. I think people are going to still use their their smartphones after this yeah, I think coronavirus gonna disruption. I think going to catch on and be a thing. I think so. I think that that might be a, a place of, uh, of of use. Actually, interesting to think about how much actually cloud computing and all tech is going to get a boost from this. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Gary Schilling. No better person here to chat to in terms of getting some long-term perspective on the U.S. economic condition and how it may fare given this coronavirus. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. We just heard Larry Kudlow make the comments that he believes that, and the administration believes that uh, this stimulus package will set up the U.S. economy for a strong second half. Do you uh, entertain that type of optimism? No, I don't. I, I think the kind of disruptions we've had, uh, people pulling their horns. You look at what happened after 9-11. I mean, it was over in a matter of minutes, but people worried about follow-on attacks and so on and so forth. Uh, I think this is going to have a decided impact on on confidence of, of consumers and, and, and businesses in this country. And there are other important things, too. I think that it's, uh, it's marking a, a further pull away from globalism. Uh, I had a, a Bloom, another Bloomberg column on that one, and, you know, the point is with the disruption of supply chains and so on, uh, I think this plays to the hands of, of people like Trump who are very protectionist, uh, the idea of more self-sufficiency pulling away from uh, globalism. Dr. Schilling. Gary, it's wonderful having you because you have had a forecasting record like no other. And in 1969, you were one of the few people who thought that a recession would start late in the year. It did. Looking out now at the same site, the uh, same type of foresight, I'm wondering, do you see a similar sort of downturn, protracted downturn that monetary policy, fiscal policy just can't stop? Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, you know, this is the big debate now. Do you have a do you have a V bottom? I think it more maybe like a, more like an endless L. You have a decline and then a very slow recovery. Sure, you get the initial drop, 
a lot of money being put into people's hands, uh, and low-income people will spend it. They, they spend at least 100 percent of their incomes. But other people, businesses, I think are going to be a lot more a lot more cautious on this. And also to restart all these supply chains. I mean, China is, you know, they're talking about people going back to work, but to get things reestablished, to get the supplies. It's a very, supply chains are very intricate. You can have, you can have uh, uh, semiconductors produced in Korea. They go to Taiwan for sinal assembly, for, for sub-assembly, then to China to go into cell phones, and then they're exported to the U.S. You have all these supply chains, and it takes a long time to get those things reestablished. So it's interesting, Gary, the, you know, a lot of the Wall Street economists are kind of looking for that V-shaped uh, recovery. So it'll be interesting to see whether that comes to fruition. Give us your sense of what you think the Fed has done. The Fed had a very busy day yesterday, really came on strong with more quantitative easing. Give us what your, your thoughts on how you think the Fed is handling this. Yeah, they used to call this pushing on a string. You know, and you pull on a string, you get results, you tighten monetary policy. But when you push on a string, it just goes limp. I think that's a situation. I mean, the Fed has basically made uh, plenty of, of money available, uh, and and the question is, it is it isn't so much a, a question of of liquidity as a question of solvency, and the question of of who wants to borrow, who wants to who wants to spend. Uh, so you really shift over to fiscal policy as having to carry the have to carry the the um, the water. The Fed just the Fed is just. I mean, they've done virtually everything they can except literally dump money out of helicopters. Yeah. Well, and, and given the fact that you have served on the staffs at the San Francisco Fed, uh, Bank of America, I'm wondering how concerned you are about the idea of the Ira Jersey was just talking about that the Fed's balance sheet could climb behind $9 trillion in short order here. Well, uh, you know, the thing is that, that people are have gotten very callous to this. Uh, you used to have a big concern. You go back to the days of Paul Ryan and the sequestering the idea that big deficits, uh, big monetary ease would result in inflation and higher interest rates. Well, of course, what's happened is you've had these deficits now uh, a trillion dollars and headed much, much higher uh, with the reaction of the coronavirus and interest rates have come down. So you got they call that modern monetary uh, theory. You know, theory follows fact. You have the facts. You dream up a theory to make them. Uh, so, so there's literally there's literally no concern about deficits, and right now, you know, the the, the world is is uh, is lusting for dollars. Yeah, uh, that's why you, you saw the strength in the dollar. You're seeing the strength in treasuries. Uh, this is where people want to be. These are the safe havens, and also I think with yeah. the prospects of of uh, lower inflation, even deflation. Uh, you have less reason to worry about about uh, deficits and, yeah. and Federal Reserve uh, action. Gary Schilling, thank you so much. Too short. Uh, unfortunately, we have to go, uh, but I could speak with you all afternoon. Gary Schilling <laughs> is the president of A. Gary Schilling & Co., also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Look at some of the stability that we're seeing in certain markets and the surge in U.S. equities, and there is still a huge question mark around the mortgage market. Really, a huge pain as we see funds, including Invesco Mortgage Capital, the latest, saying that they are unable to meet margin calls as the value of mortgage debt falls, plummets. Logan Motoshami, covering the mortgage market for years, senior loan officer at AMC Lending, contributed to Housing Wire. I, I want to get your sense, Logan. 
what exactly is it that's causing the incredible pain within the housing market, within the mortgage market, that goes beyond a lot of the other uh, declines that we've seen in other asset classes? The mortgage market meltdown really happened when rates collapsed. And I think the first thing we have to think about is that the EPO risk, early payoff risks, just blew out the entire system. So what you saw was that uh, mortgage companies could not afford to push rates lower. And they, I think March 9th, we saw about a 1% increase in rates that week, even though the 10-year yield went all the way down to uh, 32 basis points. Uh, the, the business of being in the mortgage business basically collapsed on everyone. So you're starting to see credit freeze. All the non-QM mortgage lenders are gone. None, none of them are around. Are there, there, some of them might come back, but they're gone. QM being... QM being mortgages eligible for yeah. Fannie Freddie? No, non-QM are those that are outside the Freddie and Fannie right. uh, guidelines. So uh, basically, the only lender right now is the government. Everyone's basically a loan processor for government loans. Uh, and Freddie and Fannie are still under government uh, uh, grips, so they could still function somewhat normal. But it was a complete meltdown. Uh, there's not enough money in the mortgage business to offset these margin calls. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have more casualties going out. But uh, the Fed, the Federal Reserve obviously saw what was going on, and they're going to be aggressively going back into the mortgage-backed securities. But I'm not sure this is going to uh, end without more casualties in the mortgage industry. All right. So, Logan, is there anything in the stimulus plans? There's a House plan, there's a Senate plan that you've seen that will try to address uh, the mortgage market? Well, we're looking at basically 12 months of mortgage payments not being need to be made uh, if you're part of this uh, coronavirus uh, plan that facilitates that you can show your job or, or the ability not to pay. So the, the housing, it's really interesting. The housing market is on fire. It is literally the best first two months of the year. Uh, and for myself, as somebody who's talked about years 2020 to 2024 is going to look good, it even surprises me. 13-year highs in existing home sales. New home sales, three-month sales trend is on, is on fire. We have 8% existing home sales, median sales price growth. That is way too hot, and then this happened. So I think once... You get mortgage-backed securities being purchased. Once lockdown protocols are taken off, people can go walk the earth without social distancing. We can get back to a more traditional housing market that it was hot, hot, hot. The sector was hot. The economy was fine before this virus. But you're going to have to deal with some of the casualties in the mortgage uh, business. And, you know, we're going to have to see how much does inventory actually move up when people cannot functionally put their house on the market. So, Logan, let's unpack some of this. The whole idea of the casualties in the mortgage market, you're talking about uh, the, the mortgage market outside of the Fannie and Freddie backing. And I'm wondering what that means for people looking to buy a home. Does it mean that their rates go up if their mortgages are above a certain amount? Does it mean that there just generally is going to be less capital around for home loans? How does that translate? We're, we're right now seeing the market get a little bit better because rates jumped up 1% on everyone and all the banks were raising rates. So it's starting to get a little bit better. So over time, whatever is left in the industry should be able to function normally uh, now that the Fed is in the system. So we'll see. But there are, like for, for example, 
when you have, when you lose an entire branch of a mortgage industry, the non-QM lenders, that's stress. Nobody was going to give them money. Credit has uh, froze. So some of the non-traditional lending is gone, not happening. So I think that's that's the first well, and glaring but, aspect. Of but it. can you talk about who they lent to? In other words, what niche well, did they fill that won't be filled if these companies go up, uh, go belly up? Here's a here's a good uh, people that are uh, over 43 to 45 percent debt to income ratios. People that have bank statement loans. People that don't traditionally uh, get verified through self-employment or W two pay stub. Those loans that are not part of the qualified mortgage uh, are gone. So bank statement loans and and higher debt to income ratios. Those loans are not going to be around this year. Uh, so that, I think though, that's the marketplace that gets hit. Now we're looking at probably less than three percent of all mortgages that are being done, uh, especially with bank statement loans. But that marketplace right now is permanently shut off. Logan, how would you compare what we're experiencing the mortgage market now uh, versus 2008, 2009? And does that give you any roadmap for how it may recover? You know, in 2008, I remember when, in August of 2008, I remember Wells Fargo did a flash showing 8% mortgages everywhere. And that was basically, we don't want to do business anymore. Now, you see some of the mortgage rates increase, you know, to try to stem, because remember, the uh, refinance demand booming, uh, purchase application demand booming. So you have some capacity constraints. It's a much different marketplace because you don't have this over-leveraged credit bubble uh, on the consumer side and on the, on, the, on the financial side. So it's different in the sense that more traditional lending will move on fine. Freddie and Fannie are still under the government uh, protection. That'll be fine. Back then, you know, you, you had no idea what was going to happen uh, every single day. So the traditional side of lending, basic, fundamental, sound home lending is still here. But some of the niche players are gone right now. And I, I don't see, as long as the government is holding Freddie and Fannie's hand, this will be okay. If they were fully publicly traded companies that weren't under the protection of the government, that might have been a different story. I think that's the most important thing. We have to, we have to be very grateful that the government is still part of Freddie and Fannie right now because the mortgage market itself is still functioning well. You just have the niche players taken out. Logan Motashami, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Logan is a senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group, also a columnist for The Housing Wire, joining us from Irvine, California. And again, Lisa, once again, we get into a crisis mode in the financial markets. We see pain in that mortgage market, just like uh, we did back in 2008, 2009. Well, to me, it was just striking that there's some mutual funds that got pretty top ratings from Morningstar as far as their performance went, seeing 40% drops in days last week. I mean, this massive, massive declines that we saw as margin calls were not met, as redemptions had to be met. And this was the bid lists that we saw over the weekend uh, with commercial property and uh, subprime mortgage debt that had been repackaged that was trying to be sold at fire sales. Really interesting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.